again and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was uh, Jacko Jack Check and Uncertain Times. Another track from his new album, Secrets and Lies. Do you want to tell me about that track? All right. So, so that particular song was inspired by something that happened on the day of the Brexit uh, result. Uh, on the night that the result was announced... Um, there is a place in Hammersmith uh, uh, on uh, King's Road, at uh, King's Street in Hammersmith, called the Polish Centre. And my adoptive father, when he was old and when, when my mother died, um, I would take him there. We, the, they did cultural events. They had a cafe. We went to lunch there. We went to dinner there. So it was, it was a place I had an attachment and a degree of nostalgia for. Mm. On the night of the Brexit result, the place was covered in racist graffiti which was really shocking uh, and saddening, but it was also indicative of, of the divisive nature of the whole argument, really, and, and how that element of society that had kind of suppressed uh, some more extreme views, suddenly it, it felt all right. Suddenly those things seemed to be legitimised, and hence the murder of Joe Cox and, and, and whatever. So um, the following day on Facebook, uh, I mean, I, tend to, I don't really do much on Facebook and I certainly avoid doing anything political or religious. But, uh, but I, was so, uh, I was so kind of angered by this. I put a little piece up and I, um, and I explained why and then I put a link to the, a newspaper article about what had happened. Mm. And then, you know, lots of people, you know, wrote in sympathy. And then after a while, people started sharing it. And then people that weren't my friends, in inverted commas, started commenting and for two weeks I got real abuse in essence because of my surname because actually I'm not Polish at all I'm I'm Irish born in London but because I had a Polish surname I, I got a great deal of abuse telling me we won you lost why don't you f off home you know so the lyric was inspired by that although the title was Robert's right uh, under lock and key which is another co-writer with Robert actually on that tune I got hold of, uh, this is a bit like what I was saying before, a kind of cryptic musical puzzle to create something. I had a look at the archive. There's loads of uh, Crimson archive that, that a guy called Alex looks after for D, uh, DGM. And he had, he had these original recordings of Robert doing Frippatronics in the 70s. So I took some of that and played with them and then wrote the song on top of it. That kind of dictated where it could and couldn't go harmonically. So that's that tune. And the lyric, again, the lyric was, again, was a very personal thing. And it was about, um, you know, that movie, Different Sliding Doors, you know, where you, you see the same scene, but one is delayed, but, and then, are, you know, so you go two different paths. So it's a bit about that. It's a bit about something significant happening and changing the course of your life. And had that not happened, you know, what, what might have happened? What, what might have happened in a parallel universe? Um, it's more specific than that, but that, that's, that's enough. So that's what that's about. Separation, which is the last track on the album and features uh, Tony and Mel and Robert and Gavin. That was one of the tunes where Robert used to do these trips where I live. Um, he, he's moved now, but Steve Wilson, you know Steve Wilson? Oh, yeah. Steve used to live about five minutes away. So Robert would come uh, to this neck of the woods and he'd go to Steve's for a day to check on whatever mixes Steve was doing for the back catalogue. And then he would come here to the studio and he would teach me some new thing that he'd written a double guitar thing or a new riff or whatever. And I would record everything he ever did when he came here. Uh, sometimes he would have <clears throat> a piece sketched out from top to bottom. 
uh, and he might have a, he, he, I don't know, what was that? Oh, we did, there's a song, he said, I've written a blues in seven. So, uh, you know, I wrote music on top of that. And on Separation, Separation was part of uh, uh, loads of variations of these ideas that he'd had. And I stitched them all together. And then there were some others that were in a different tempo, so I had to play those myself. And then eventually this whole track emerged. And uh, as I've told other people, those, those three tracks, for instance, I would submit stuff to Robert and the stuff that he instantly connected with, we would go into rehearsals and flesh them out. And now they're part of our repertoire. These three songs, um, Robert said something along, well, we had this in-joke started to develop, which was Robert saying, I love these songs. I think they're fantastic. Uh, they'd make an ideal track for your new solo album, which is not so subtle co code for, well, we're not playing this. And um, so here they are on my solo record. But yeah, I, I, there you go. So each one of those pieces was written in a completely different way uh, from a completely different starting point. You know.
go back to mid to early 90s and then work our way up to date this time. We have another one of your solo projects and the song The Hands of Che Guevara. But this is particularly interesting because you worked with three members of brilliant band uh, Japan on this one. Yeah, the genesis of that was I was living in Los Angeles in about 89, I think. I got a phone call from Gavin and the acoustic group that I mentioned earlier, Dysrhythmia with Danny Thompson in it. That record had become quite hip in a part of Italy. There was a, there was a kind of uh, a group of kind of engineers and musicians who all really loved that record. One of whom was a producer of a girl called um, Carla Bissi, who in Italy is known as Alice. She's like, well, for want of a better explanation, she's kind of Italy's answer to Kate Bush. She started off as a kind of pop star and then, and then started to expand and started using musicians from around the world. And, and she'd made an album with Jerry Marotta and Tony Levin. And we got the call uh, because she loved this album that we'd made and said, would we be part of her band? So I left LA and I, we ended up in, in uh, Northern Italy, mm. modern, I think. And we were promoting an album that she'd just finished that was produced by Richard Barbieri and Steve Jansen from Japan. And I, I'd been a big fan of Japan, uh, uh, Tin Drum in particular, which I thought was brilliant and unique and very original. So it meant that we, you know, we got an opportunity to hang out with those guys and we became friends. And then, uh, then I did the Level 42 thing. And then after the Level 42 thing, um, they were at a loose end on wondering what to do. And they, they'd been recording on their own. And um, I'd come up with these amazing, these backing tracks with, with Mick Khan's amazing bass playing. And uh, we, we hung out a lot and went out a lot socially. And, uh, and they were going to form a band with a guy called Robbie Aceto, who had been in David Sylvian's band, a New Yorker. But that hadn't happened. So they, they gave me these tracks and said, you know, do you, do you fancy having a go at it? So I wrote these songs with a view to it being an, uh, an ongoing thing. But, you know, things happen. I think Level 42 had came back again, didn't it? In that year, I think I did another tour with them. Um, so in the end, we never got beyond recording. Uh, I think it's just four tracks. So in the end, they said, oh, well, look, you put it out as you if you want. But it was a band project with uh, three quarters of what was Japan. Get my 
the start, I guess, of the association that you have with uh, King Crimson with the 21st Century Skitside Band. This time we have Catley's Ashes, which is a studio version. I think uh, one of your tracks, actually, this time. How, how did you um, get involved with some of the guys from King Crimson? Well, I told you in the previous podcast that the publishers gave me a list of potential collaborators after I'd accidentally uh, written uh, some successful songs. <laughs> and there were two names on there that, that stood out. One was Tom Robinson, which we've discussed. Yeah. And the other was Pete Sinfield. Right. And of course, I knew Pete Sinfield because, well, he named King Crimson. He wrote all the words. He co-produced the first four albums. Mm. Uh, but he had then gone on to be this incredibly successful pop lyricist, writing for Diana Ross and Celine Dion. So I thought, well, I've got to meet him, even if we never work together. I've got to meet him. I'm such a crim. Mm. So I did, and, and he was he was terribly entertaining and great company and a great bon viveur. And we went out for a lot of lunches and never. I think we wrote one song half-heartedly. And then in '97, I think it was, he called me up and said, "Oh." DGM are putting out a live box set of uh, live recordings by the original lineup. And there's a launch at the Intercontinental Hotel. Would you like to come as my guest? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and at that event, they, would, they were all talking about, well, Robert's got this idea of putting the original band together just for one tour. And then there were some issues, I think, with Greg Lake's management. And then, so then they were going to do it with somebody else. And then they thought, no. And so then Robert dropped the whole idea. But, but the idea of there being a band playing the older Crimson material, because at the time, the then current Crimson didn't play any of that older material, I think, apart from Larks 2 and uh, Talking Drum. Um, so they discussed that, and Pete Sinfield said, well, I know a guy who can play the guitar parts and is a, is a good singer. And so I ended up, ironically, it was a band full of people who used to be in King Crimson, apart from me. <laughs> And, and now, ironically, I am in King Crimson. Um, and, and they're not, although Mel is, because Mel, that's where I met Mel. I'd never spoken to Robert Fripp. And one morning, my phone rang, and it was a number I didn't recognise. And there he was. So, Jacko, it's Robert Fripp here. I went, oh, I freaked me out. <laughs> and he said, um, he said uh, How's, uh, how are the rehearsals going with the Skipsoid Band? And I said, well, if I'm honest, Robert, it's been three of the most unpleasant weeks of my life as a musician. He said, yeah, so I thought that might be the case. And then we had this kind of bonding thing of, you know, I'm his surrogate working with the same guys and what a nightmare it was. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got to know him. And then I asked him to play my solo record. And, uh, and so you're, you're going to play the, my solo version of the track I wrote for the Schizoid Band. Is that right? Yeah. Catley's Ashes. Catley's Ashes. Yeah. So I wrote this instrumental for the Schizoid Band, but it never really sounded kind of right to me, so uh, I recorded it on my next solo record. This is that version.
Next, we have Lenny Henry, and the cops don't know. You worked with him on his uh, blues album, but theme of this, I mean, this was, I think this was recorded five, six years ago, is so prescient yeah. for today's times. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've known Lenny a long time, uh, and I've worked with him before. I did all the music for numerous TV shows, and I uh, did all the incidental music for a sitcom he wrote. So we've been mates, and... Um, he wanted to do a blues-based record. So we did some covers and we, we wrote a load of stuff together. And um, I said, let's do it seriously. So we got a really good band in, recorded it live. I mean, I haven't done that in years, which so it was great fun. Hmm. And we'd finished the record, actually. And then he said, actually, he said, I've written this lyric and I'd really like to put it on the record. And I said, well, we can't. We've run out of budget. And the... I said, all right, maybe we'll do an acoustic version then. Let, leave it with me. So then I wrote this thing and then I found... Uh, I took some of the drums off one of the other tracks and then I recorded bass and then I recorded multi-track vocals and then mm. fake strings and then it became this enormous thing and yeah it became this track called The Cops Don't Know which we, we got this incredible um, young animator to make this brilliant video for it and as you say yeah uh, I, I mean I've, I've played it to people who think it was written a few weeks ago mm. because it sounds so current which of course just adds to how desperately sad it is that Things haven't changed because mm. that was, as you say, five years ago. And uh, and those incidents were as prevalent, if not worse, then than they are now. As well as listening to the track here, I, I would uh, urge uh, the listeners to go onto YouTube and, and watch that video as well. It's very powerful. Yeah, he's brilliant. Subsequently, he's made um, two videos for me on the new album too. Uh, this guy called Sam Cigini. So he did a video for The Trouble With Angels and Uncertain Times. Uh, which stars uh, Al Murray. The security guard took aim, treated the whole thing like sport. He shot Brandon Moore in the back without a single thought. Said on the news at one, we watch and think and wonder, but what the hell is going on? The guard had a record, shot people twice. the force, misdemeanors against the law, but the papers didn't even print his name, the cops got sent to traffic, to them it's all again, to them it's all again.
Another King Crimson connection, and the, the connection with King Crimson just keeps on getting stronger. Uh, this time, the uh, Jack Check, Fripp, and Collins project, a scarcity of, of miracles. Um, so, well, there's just, just a post uh, schizoid band, and your connection with Robert grew. Well, I'll tell you what happened. A couple of things happened. One, when I was in the schizoid band, Mike Giles, who was the original drummer in Crimson, uh, and who left nine months after the band kind of imploded on the world. Mm. Um, he was the drummer in the schizoid band. And after the first tour left, 
Uh, and so we replaced him with Ian Wallace and Ian Wallace had replaced Mike in the original live version. So, and, and Ian was the drummer I, I, uh, that was playing with Crimson when I saw them uh, when I was there. And he was a lovely man and, um, and a great drummer and um, spent a lot of, lot of time with him, but tragically he died. And I sang um, a King Crimson song called Islands at his memorial day. And Robert was in the front row, I think. And um, he was very impressed, uh, you know, because it's a, it's, it's, these are never pleasant things to perform at. Mm. And he invited me up to his house. And I went up there and we spent the day having lunch and chatting. And he wasn't specific because he never is, but I kind of got the impression. I thought, is he, <laughs> is he asking me to join Crimson? Is he sounding me out? <laughs> and he didn't in the end, uh, but he was sounding me out about Gavin. And I remember driving back from that day and I phoned Gavin and I said, Robert's going to ask you to join Crimson. And, and indeed he did. And they did one more short tour with Adrian Ballou. And then after that, I got a call from him saying, did I want to go down to his studio in Wiltshire and just spend the day improvising with him? And I went, uh, okay. Hmm. Um, so hmm. I, I turned up, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if he'd recorded stuff or what we were going to do. And I, when I got there, the studio was ready to record and he had his enormous rack. He's got this amazing thing, which he calls the lunar module with all these, uh, and all these pedals on the floor. And he said, no, we're just going to hit record and play whatever we play. So we just improvised and we improvised a number of pieces all day. He kind of led it and I joined in and soloed and played chords and parts. And, and we stopped for lunch. And then at the end of the day, we had a cup of tea and then I was just about to leave and he gave me this box and I said, what's this? He said, that's the hard drive with what we've recorded today. I said, right, what do you want me to do with this? He said, I'm sure you'll think of something. Yeah. So I thought, okay. So, and then I went home and I thought, all right, well, what, what can I do with this? And what struck me as being the obvious thing to do was to go through it, find sections that kind of worked and chop them all together which is why I rejected doing that. Because I thought, well, if that's the obvious thing to do, I'm not going to do it. Mm. So I thought, I'm just going to follow each piece and see how they develop organically. So I went through each piece and I started dividing them into little sections, recording bits of vocal, improvising vocal melodies, coming up with other parts. And eventually this kind of thing emerged. It was a bit like, a, you know, we talked earlier about... Um, how do you compose? Well, it's a bit like a sculpture, you know, because you keep moving bits and chuffing bits. And I sent stuff to him, he got very excited about it. And he said, let's get Mel in. I said, well, okay. So then Mel came over here and was soloing. And he soloed through everything. We did several takes and we tried different instruments. And then when Mel went, I went through the material again. And, and, I, and some things I kept as solos and other things I thought, actually, that's a really lovely line he's just improvised there. Mm. so I would edit stuff around it so we just had this line and then I doubled it on guitar and then I came up with a harmony and then I did it a bit later and suddenly I had this kind of musical arrangement that you would never have written mm. from scratch it was it came out of improvisation and had this kind of organic flow but it sounds like it's written because I got Mel back and he doubled and and did harmony stuff and so that's, we made this, we ended up making this record. It was never an intention to make a record, I don't think. It was just, let's see what happens. 
and we put it out. Got we replaced my the fake drums that I put on there. We replaced with Gavin, and my lousy bass playing we replaced with Tony Levin, who was brilliant. And so we had this kind of band, you know, Tony Levin, Gavin, Robert, me, and Mel. Mm. And uh, the album came out as Jack Check Fripp and Collins, but he he called it the King Crimson Project. Said it wasn't quite King Crimson, but it almost was. And I think the year after it came out, he made a public announcement that he was retiring from the music industry altogether. I know he wasn't very happy with the last tour Crimson did, and I think he'd kind of had enough. So even though I had been involved in doing all these things, oh, the other thing I did, of course, was I remixed an album called Thrack in, in Surround. Mm. So I'd been on the, you know, I'd been within the organisation. I was kind of, you know, within all that. But the fact that he'd retired meant that when he phoned up in September 2013, so seven years ago, and said, uh, I've decided to reform King Crimson. I'm phoning each member I would like to be in the band. And if anyone says they don't want to do it, then I'm not going to do it at all. Wow. I went, okay, would you like to be the lead singer and um, second guitarist? And of course, I, you know, yeah. I thought this is insane. I, I saw King Crimson when I was 13. And now I'm in King Crimson. It's just the maddest childhood dream made flesh. And I immediately phoned Gavin, the first person I phoned, and said, Robert's just phoned me. He said, yeah, I know, he phoned me first. <laughs> so he, he put that in. And that's been my day job ever since. It's been the, been the nearest thing I've ever had to a proper job.
Now you talked about joining King Crimson, but you um, assisted Steve Hackett there on, on vocals and guitar on recording a Genesis classic, really, with Entangled from A Trick of the Tail, which is a, a fine album. How, how, how did Steve get in touch with you and kind of what was the process for remoulding that? I've met Steve socially on a number of occasions because uh, one of my best pals who lives quite near here is a bass player called Nick Beggs. Oh, yeah. And Nick had been in his band, so, I, you know, I'd been to loads of gigs and, and met Steve and chatted to him at length. And also we had another mutual friend who lives up the road and, uh, I, you know, we'd had dinner there a few times. And so I, I, I knew Steve socially. And he phoned me up one day and said he's going to do an album of uh, re-records of, of classic Genesis stuff. And actually, he said to me, if he asked me to sing, what songs from the Genesis catalogue would I like to sing? And I said, well, there's two that spring to mind. Because when, when I was a kid, I, I probably saw Genesis, certainly the incarnation with Pete Gabriel. Mm. I think I probably saw them more than any other band. Because they played a lot around here in the home counties. So, in fact, the first time I saw them was in a tiny club with about 200 people. And Steve had just joined, I think. It was before Nursery Crime had come out. And I said to him, my favourite number live used to be this song called Twilight Owl House. So my two choices were Twilight Owl House and Entangled off of Trick of the Tail. So we ended up doing Trick of the Tail. And I recorded the vocals and I I took some liberties and recorded loads of harmonies and and he seemed to like them all. So he kept them all and then we did a video. And and then... um, he was going to film one of the shows on that tour. So we did a warm-up show near here. And then the next night we did, we played at uh, Hammersmith Odeon, or whatever it's called these days, with Nick Kershaw, who I know, and, um, and John Wetton, who I also, I also knew quite well. Um, and then the following tour, he phoned up and said... Um, oh, you know, we're playing Hamsmith on Saturday. Are you still coming? And I said, oh, is it an issue with the tickets? I know what it's like, London shows are a nightmare. He said, no, no, no. Did you want to sing something? And I went, really? He said, yeah. He said, how about singing the Firth of Fifth? And I said, oh. <laughs> you know, again, I, you know, again, I'd been this big Genesis fan and, um, and there I was on stage singing that song. It was extraordinary.
get to dysrhythmia and trust me i'm a healer now you mentioned your acoustic band previously yes, the first I, time around but you, you revisited that or kind of regrouped it uh, yeah. much more recently yeah well we did the first album back in uh 87 and it did quite well you know it was on a it was on it was on this label part of island records called antilles that had a lot of jazz acts and it sold reasonably well you know for, for a band that uh, of that nature and we always meant to do a, a, a follow-up. And, it, and then we'd start doing it. And then Gavin got a job with this Italian uh, guy called Claudio Valiani, who's enormous in Italy. And he'd go away for months on end. I mean, literally months. And then he'd come back and then I'd be on tour with Level 42. So it went on for years. And we'd try and do a bit of recording here, a bit of recording there. And eventually, um, we were suddenly, we were both in the same band. So our schedules were kind of aligned. Mm. I said, should we just finish this thing? So um, we did. It's mostly, it's got a lot more um, songs on this record. But the piece you're going to play is an instrumental. And it's, uh, it's the legendary Danny Thompson on double bass, uh, Gavin on drums, uh, Pandit Dinesh on Indian percussion. And Dave Stewart, again, uh, from Hatfields and Bruford. Yeah, uh, on piano.
And even though we talked about Robert a lot, we talked about King Crimson, we talked about joining King Crimson, we actually haven't played a track labelled King Crimson until now. <laughs> and uh, here we have Meltdown, a, a track that you uh, wrote with Robert. How much were you um, writing with, with Robert in the last sort of four or five years? Well, I think I mentioned it in the previous podcast that he would come round, he, te- he would teach me things and, and I would assemble stuff. And uh, Meltdown was one of these twin guitar things that he taught me. And I, so I learned it and then I demoed it up and I put some bass on it and got Gavin to play some drums. And, and I remember I'd written some lyrics and some, and some vocal melodies and... Um, the trouble was the kind of chorus bit, having done it as a recording. So I, you know, I had all this music and then I sang on top of it. And then I thought, oh man, if we do this live, I'm not going to be able to play and sing that. That's just too hard. I'm playing this mad thing. Hmm. So I remember changing the part and making it simpler. I thought I'll, I'll make that part simpler so I can sing and play at the same time. And then Robert came around and I said, oh, I, I finished the demo of that song and I played it to him. And he said, he said, I love it. I think it's great. But what have you done in the chorus? I said, we had this great double thing. He sounds much, much better with that. Get rid of what you've done and, and do the original. And I, I gave a heavy sigh and said, you know, I have to sing and play that at the same time. <laughs> and he said, I know it's marvellous. I don't know how you do it. And I thought, I can't fucking do it. That's the whole point. <laughs> um, anyway, so, but now I can miraculously if you practice hard enough. It's that, oh, it's a jigsaw thing, you know, where the thing that you're playing and the thing that you're singing has to become part of the same thing rather than, you know what I mean? When you start, it's two separate things, but you have to think of it as one thing. And so, uh, yeah, so that's what, that's how we wrote that. Listening to the most recent King Crimson concerts is there, there is a lot of, of new material and some of that gets released on, on the various uh, live albums that you do. Do you think, uh, probably more Robert's view that there will be a, a new King Crimson album with, New material? Well, we often get asked this. We do this, uh, when we play live, we do a thing called the Royal Package where you get right, to, yeah. you know about that. And you, you yeah, yeah, sit yeah. there and the manager chats, you get to do a Q&A. I mean, Robert comes out and you get to do a Q&A with one or two band members. And that's, you know, we're, we're always asked that. And the, uh, our manager's diplomatic, diplomatic response to that question is, there are no plans currently to do a new King Crimson album. <laughs> However, there are no plans not to. Yeah. And I think the reality is... There's a number of pragmatic considerations. I mean, I think, yes, you can record all this stuff mm. remotely, but I think for it to be a band, you kind of need to be together, or certainly the, the starting point of it. And just putting these group of musicians together in one place is a costly exercise. Mm. Moving the equipment from wherever it is, in where, whatever part of the globe. Got two guys living in different parts of America. Um, so, you know, just us rehearsing is a costly thing. Uh, and then, well, man, you know, it's hard enough. It's, it's hard enough uh, finding the middle ground and compromise in a three-piece band, let alone, uh, you know, and I guess we all know the buck stops with, with Robert. So the, it's, it's fraught with uh, potential problems. And, you know, we kind of live in a different world. Uh, and well, we certainly do now. But before the virus, we lived in a different world because historically um, you toured to promote your recent album. Yeah. And of course everything's been turned on its head and now you're taught to earn money. And, and if you, if you have an album, it's almost like it's a memento of the show rather than the other way around, you know? So I think there's an element of that. I, I, listen, I think we'd all be up for it. I think there's enough new material and other undeveloped material. I, I don't think that's an issue. 
but who knows? I don't know if it's the weight of expectation or just, but uh, you know, it will happen when Robert wants it to happen and decides that it will happen and it won't if he doesn't, I guess. It's great that you're still producing new music and it's still getting out there anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, people often miss that, but yeah, we, we, we've been coming up with, uh, with quite a few new things. Mm. Um, it's not just the older stuff, but we, we just, we keep adding to the repertoire every time we get together. So it'll either be a new piece or it will be an older piece that we haven't done before. And then we end, we've got this enormous repertoire now of about five hours worth of music. And, um, and Robert changes the set list every night. That must keep it very fresh. And Yeah, that's one word for it. Uh, <laughs> the set lists normally arrive at lunchtime. And uh, <laughs> sometimes there's a panic of, oh, man, what, when, when did we last play that? How does that go? And then we'll run through the, the additions that we haven't played in a while at the soundcheck. But yeah, it keeps you on your toes, I guess.
We're here already, our final track of the second podcast, and what a pleasure it has been, Jacko, to talk about so many different projects, so many great artists that um, that you've worked with. It does feel a bit like a celebration of your career. This is your life. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this track is a bit of a, a celebration. King Crimson's version of Heroes recorded in Berlin about four years ago, and obviously Heroes been... Very well known, obviously, David Bowie, but Robert's role on guitar on that. And, and some of the things that you've talked about, about incredible moments in your career that you just wouldn't have imagined. I imagine playing this track, singing this track live in Berlin with Robert doesn't get much better, really, does it? <laughs> no, it's, it's mad. And, and, and when, when David Bowie died that year, I, I, I thought, God, it might be a nice tribute. Maybe we should do that. And then I thought, well, no, Robert's going to think that's a naff idea. So I refrained from, from saying it. And then I told the manager, he said, maybe you should, um, maybe you should mention it to him. And then Robert wrote to me saying, I think we might do heroes. I said, I was just going to say the same thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I loved it for loads of reasons, not least of which, you know, we would invariably do it as an encore or one of the encores. So after an evening of, uh, of an immense amount of concentration <laughs> to do a song that's got four chords in it, it's the only part of the evening where I felt like a rock star. And, it was, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it's a joy. It's an absolute joy to play. And as you say, you know, I, you, that night in particular, we were in Berlin where they recorded it for crying out loud. Hmm. And Robert Fripp is sat next to me and I'm, I'm singing this Bowie song. What the hell? And the crowd, when they realised what we were playing, just went nuts. And uh, yeah, of course, it was... Absolutely extraordinary moment, uh, one of many, you know, I've been very fortunate. Thank you. And just a final mention of your new album, uh, Secrets and Lies, yes, and I you. urge everyone to uh, to go and uh, get their hands on it and uh, dig into your back catalogue. Much of, much of it's now kind of available digitally and online, and Burning Shed as well is a great resource for much of the material here. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Brilliant guys. label. All right, thank you very much for your time. All right, cheers. Thank you, man. Nice to meet you. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.